We have heard, you know, we're going to be looking at John's gospel again. We're going to be in John chapter 2, by the way, if you want to open up and turn to John chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. And John, if you recall, when we first discussed the various portraits of Christ portrayed by the four gospel writers, John portrays Jesus as who? The Son of God. And... Uh, that's exactly what we'll see this morning. He is not only the Son of God, he is the Creator God. We'll see that in a marvelous way as we look at this lesson entitled Marriage and Miracle in Cana, lesson number 14. It is the very first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ recorded for us in the Scripture. And because it says it is the beginning of miracles, it's not only the first recorded miracle, it is the first miracle of Jesus Christ in his life. And we'll talk about why that's important. All right, now, this far in our Life of Christ study, we have, we have read about many, many testimonies as to who Jesus Christ is, you know, that he is God, that he is the very Son of God and Israel's King. We've heard testimonies from angels, we've heard testimonies from shepherds, we've heard testimonies from wise men, we've heard testimonies from uh, godly men such as Simeon and Anna and uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. We even, in a reverse sort of way, heard testimony from Herod the Great. And we heard a testimony from the herald of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Furthermore, God himself has given us testimony when he spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then again, in a reverse sort of way, we heard testimony even from Satan um, in tempting the Lord Jesus Christ and trying to get him to, to fall so that he then would be victorious over God. And he did say, Since thou be the son of God do so and so. And then we heard testimonies from the Lord's first disciples. That's what we looked at last week, the, the first six of the Lord's disciples. Remember what Andrew said to his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. We heard from Philip when he spoke to his friend Nathaniel and said, we have found him of whom Moses and the, and the prophets write, have written. And then even Nathaniel, skeptical Nathaniel, after just a very short time in the Lord's presence said, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. So we've had all kinds of testimony so far as to who Jesus Christ is. You know, there are four ways, other than the written word of God, the, the scripture, four basic ways in which testimony is given in this world regarding the deity and the saviorhood of Jesus Christ. And they are the words of Christians, true born-again Christians, the words of Christians who testify of who he is and how he has changed their lives. And then there are the works of Christians. Doesn't it say, didn't Jesus say, let your light so shine before men that they might see what? Your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Also, we're told in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship. You know, in Greek, I love that word, workmanship, in the Greek because it's poema. Did you ever know that you're a poem? You're a walking poem. That's what that word is. You are his poem. Created in Christ Jesus unto what? Un unto good works. So when we do good works... In the name of Christ, that is a testimony as to who he is. So we have the words of Christians and we have the works of Christians. And then most importantly, we have the words of Christ himself, which, of course, we find in the Gospels. And they reveal to us his omniscient wisdom and his, tremend and his just tremendous wisdom and his power and his authority. There are also the works of Jesus Christ. And his works testify as to who he is. His, his many, many miracles 
demonstrate, and of course not all the miracles he performed are recorded for us in the scripture, but they demonstrated definitely his deity because they displayed his absolute authority over every realm of life that you can think of. They demonstrated his authority over nature. They demonstrated, as we will see in this miracle, that he is the creator God, that he created something from nothing, which is called ex nihilo, and only God himself can do that. They demonstrated his authority over Satan and his demonic realm, so he had authority over the spiritual world. He demonstrated his authority over sicknesses and diseases and even over what? Our greatest enemy, death itself. So the miracles of Jesus Christ not only testify as to who he is, but also, very importantly, his miracles gave authority to, to what he had to say. They were always to give authority to his words. His, his works gave authority to his words. Now, the Apostle John, in the second chapter of his gospel account, began to demonstrate by way of the Lord's works that he is, that Christ is indeed the creator God. And it's interesting, we're going to see this as we go through John's gospel, how many times he did things in sevens. Remember, seven in the Bible is symbolic of perfection or completeness. And John chose seven. As I said, the Lord performed many, many miracles, but John only chose seven of his uh, ministerial, during his... his um, Pre-death, before his death, there's only seven miracles recorded in the book of John. For example, he healed many blind men, but John only chose to tell us about the healing of one particular blind man. And he healed many lepers, but he only told us about the healing of one leper. Um, But there was one, actually altogether, John recorded eight miracles in his gospel account. Because there was one miracle he told us about after the Lord's resurrection. And that's interesting, too, because seven is the number of perfection. Well, the Lord's earthly ministry was perfect, was it not? And then the eighth miracle, eight in the Bible, is the number of new life or resurrection. And his eighth miracle was after the Lord's resurrection. That's very interesting. I threw threw that in for free. That was free. Oh, please don't try to follow me in your books. You're going to have a hard time today because, you know, I, I told you, I hope you know this. I get a little frustrated sometimes that you have the old notes because as I'm going through this, I am changing them quite a bit, editing them and, and taking out some things and adding some things. And today I, I do quite a bit of adding, so you might want to have a pen out and, and add some things that are not in your notes. Next year, Life of Christ, one book. I know you won't, won't want to buy it again, but it will be totally edited, and it will also have all the homework answer sheets in the back of it. All right. (laughs) Maybe you will buy it then. trying to tempt you to buy it. Okay. Um, Our lesson consists today of, why did I have that up there? (laughs) Of four parts. We'll be looking at a wedding in Cana, a woman is corrected, some wine is created, and a walk to Capernaum. Boy, I didn't have to work very hard at all for those W's and C's. They were just right there. They fell out all over the place. So let's begin by looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, a wedding in Cana. It says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. All right, the first thing we find out here that on the third day there was a marriage in Cana. So we say, the third day from what? What are we talking about here, the third day? Well, it was the third day from the Lord's call to Nathaniel. That's what it's in reference to. 
Remember last week we looked at his call to skeptical Nathaniel, the one who said, can, any good, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Was the third day from that. So the Lord had spent three days with his disciples, and then he and his six disciples attended a wedding. They were invited to a wedding in Cana, which was a small Galilean village only about eight miles north of Nazareth and some 12 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the Lord and his six men, or his, I should say the first four, had left Judea. Where, they, where John had been, down near Bethabara, they had left Judea and gone up to Galilee, and that's where he found Philip, and then they went over and they, um, they found Nathaniel. They talked to Nathaniel. So he, has, he is back up in Galilee, and uh, Cana is in Galilee, just not too far from Nazareth. Actually, what's interesting, I don't know if you knew this before, unless you read your notes, but um, the first two miracles that the Lord performed, not only this miracle we'll be looking at today, turning water into wine, but the next miracle, the second miracle that the Lord performed was also performed in Cana. Cana, that's where the Lord was, at least, when he performed the miracle. He was in Cana when a nobleman came to him and asked that he would uh, heal his son, his son was at some distance. His son was over in Capernaum. But anyway, it's interesting that the first two of the Lord's uh, miracles were performed in Cana. In fact, what makes it interesting is that Nathaniel was actually from the town of Cana. And I think that's interesting because his newfound faith, he was the skeptical one, you know, but his newfound faith in the omniscience and the omnipotence of Jesus was certainly strengthened by witnessing these two great miracles, you know, a creative miracle and then a miracle from a distance. The Lord wasn't even there. You know, he just spoke and the boy was healed. Um, that, what do you think that did to Nathaniel's newfound faith? It certainly strengthened him. And do you think he had any problem with being prejudiced about someone from Nazareth after that? No, I don't think so. Do you remember the prophetic words that the Lord spoke in John 1.50 to Nathanael? Remember when he said, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. Right away. He, three days later, he began to see greater things than these. Now, the Lord and his disciples, as I said, they had been called, um, there's Nathaniel, they had been called to attend this marriage. Now, you can speculate, I don't, I don't know, I, I thought about, did the Lord know about this? You know, because a betrothal period was a year long. Had he been invited to this wedding? Was this a wedding of a relative? We'll talk about that, too. Um, did he know about this? And that, is that part of the reason he left Judea to go up to, back up to Galilee? Probably, but also the Lord is so deep and so complex and everything falls together perfectly. How can he work in all of our lives at the same time? I don't know, but that's because he's omniscient. Not only did he know he had to go to a wedding in a short time, but he also wanted to go up and find Philip. And then he knew about Nathaniel. So everything is orchestrated together and God is just, you know, that's why it boggles our minds to understand how complex he is. But uh, he probably had known about this wedding before and that's why he positioned himself so close to it. So Jesus, anyway, was invited to this wedding. most important factor for a good marriage is to have Christ's presence. But because he never forces himself on anyone, he has to be invited. You won't recognize that couple. So I ask you, has he been invited to your marriage? <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> 
uh, it was a very good thing that he was invited to this marriage in Cana because like all marriages, the newlyweds soon found that they would have a serious problem. Now, Frank and I didn't even take us, you know, this in the, the story we're going to look at, they started to have a problem at the reception. <laughs> it didn't even take, well, that's where we had the first problem, I guess, was at the reception because he put that cake in my mouth too, too, too much and it was all over and we already had a fight at the reception. <laughs> and then I cried the whole rest of the day. I did. I cried the whole rest of the day. Not because I married him and not because of the cake. No, not because of the cake. We didn't have a very big cake. I guess you see that. but <laughs> You have to look for the cake. <laughs> but uh, no, well, I was going to say, Frank wasn't even saved. He, you know, he thought he was. But anyway, it, it, it does sanction a marriage if even one of the two spouses has Christ within them. And fortunately, even though I was pretty carnal back in those days and hadn't been discipled, and, um, but I had invited Christ into my heart. So I know a lot of you have unsaved spouses, but just remember, uh, don't do what I do. Be, be patient and be <laughs> loving and, and be quiet. And, uh, but praise the Lord, my husband did get saved five years. But, you know, it, it's a good thing to invite Christ into marriage, even if, it's, if he's invited by way of one spouse. It's a whole lot better than if he isn't invited at all. All marriages experience sooner or later problems and challenges, even marriages between two Christians. And as I said, those problems can pop up at any time. They can even come, as we'll see today, during the wedding reception. So to properly prepare, to properly prepare to overcome these problems, it is vital that we make sure Christ is invited to our marriage. Can you imagine the guest list for this wedding in Cana? Wow, what a guest list. Not only did it have Jesus Christ on it, and uh, his mother Mary, who was a godly woman, and to think about this, we find out in verse 12, if you want to look ahead, that his bro- the Lord's brothers were there, and probably his sisters were there, because brethren would encompass brothers and sisters. So that means that even though they weren't saved yet, means that James, who wrote the book of James, was there. Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, was there. Um, who else was there? Okay, let's go. Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and Philip, and Nathaniel. So, you know what? A guest list at a wedding tells you a lot about the couple getting married, doesn't it? So this was probably a godly couple who had gotten married. And, um, and, and we think that probably Mary was somehow or another related. I was even speculating maybe this was the Lord's youngest sister who had fallen in love with a guy from Cana. Nazareth and Cana were only eight miles apart. I mean, you could speculate all kinds of things. But Mary was in a position of authority here. Because she told the servants what to do. So, you know, you can use your imagination on this. But it was a wonderful guest list. And uh, it was very important that he was there because the Lord saved a situation which could have caused quite a problem and made a very, very tense situation, not only between the newlyweds, but between the newlyweds' families, you know, the in-laws. And we'll talk more about why running out of wine would have been quite a problem back in those days. Well, Cana actually serves as a transitional point in the life of Christ. He still had his family. As I said, Mary was there and all his brethren. We've already talked about the fact that Joseph wasn't there. But the rest of his family was there. And um, 
Yet he was also accompanied by his first six disciples. So his family was there and his first disciples were there. So it was a, it was a transitional time. It's interesting to notice that he did perform his first miracle within the family circle. His family was there and they found out about this miracle. Um, although we don't hear that they believed on him. Of course, we know Mary did, but we don't hear that any of his brothers believed on him. But we do hear that the, the disciples believed on him. And we'll talk about what that means because they already believed, but this strengthened their belief. So it was kind of a farewell to his private life, and it was a commencement of his public life. Now, a first-century Jewish wedding feast was a, a, the highlight of life in, um, in Israel, particularly among the common people who had very stressful lives. You know, they worked long hours out in their fields or whatever they did at their, their particular trade, and... Um, and, and they were under Roman oppression, so their lives were heavy. And then they were under the heavy yoke of Judaism and the, the rabbis who had made so many laws and rules and regulations. So it, a wedding celebration was just a big deal for people back then. It was a break from their everyday, mundane, tiresome lives. It was a time of festivity when they could temporarily forget about all their, their work and their, their enemies and their problems, et cetera, et cetera, and just relax in an atmosphere of gaiety with friends and relatives. And we talked about it when we discussed Mary and Joseph, how the betrothal stage of a marriage was tw about 12 months long, and it was considered much more binding than engagements are with us today because to break a betrothal, they actually had to write out a bill of divorcement. So the couple was considered, even in their betrothal or their engagement, they were considered married, although they didn't live together and they hadn't consummated their marriage. At the close of the one-year betrothal period, on the actual evening of the marriage ceremony, the bride would be led from her parents' home to the home of her husband, and they would have a big parade with torches, you know, lit torches, and um, music was played, and people would be dancing as they walked to the home of the bridegroom, and, and wine and oil were distributed, and the children would be waving myrtle branches, and um, they would be given nuts to eat. I guess they didn't have candy bars, so they gave them nuts, and they just all had a good time. Well, when the veiled bride, of course, the bride was veiled during the whole the the, the parade and even the ceremony. Remember, this was how Jacob was, <laughs> was deceived in getting Leah because he never got to see the face and see it was Leah instead of Rachel. Even during the whole ceremony, she had the veil. And that's where veils come from, I guess, way back then. We don't wear them over our faces anymore, though, do we? We throw them back. But anyhow, so the, the veiled bridegroom was brought to the bride I mean, the bride was brought to the bridegroom, and then the marriage ceremony itself was performed. And then after the ceremony, the documents were signed, and then there was this big elaborate ceremonial washing for cleansing or for uh, purification, which was performed. And uh, that's why, by the way, they had these big water jugs that we're going to be talking about, these clay pots. They had those filled with water because the Jews washed their hands. They had this ceremony for purification for one thing and then of course you know it was custom anytime somebody would arrive their feet were always washed and then the Jews had what was called the tradition of the elders they always washed their hands before eating and um, wedding ceremonies depending on the wealth of the bridegroom's father 
Now, see, I would have liked this back in those days because it was the bridegroom's family that paid for the reception, the wedding and the reception. Having two daughters and only one son, that that sounds better to me. But (laughs) some of you might disagree if you have more sons. But uh, depending on how rich the bridegroom's father was, these wedding feasts could go on for um, three days to two weeks. So they used a, it was expensive, yeah, (laughs) but they used a lot of water. Now the water in those jugs, I don't think this is in the notes, so I'll throw this in while I'm thinking of it, was not used for drinking. It wasn't drinking water. It was used for cleansing of the hands and the feet and and for the ceremony of uh, purification. So it's, it's, um, Oh, and did I say that everybody would stay and, and they would sleep, you know, they'd spend the night and they'd get up and they'd celebrate the next day and then they'd go to bed and, you know, they'd eat all day and then they'd celebrate, they'd drink and da-da-da, and it would go on and on and on until the food and the drink ran out and then everybody pack up and go home. But it is significant to realize that Christ's first miracle took place at a marriage celebration. His presence at the uniting of two people in marriage put his stamp of approval not only on marriage but also on the ceremony itself the lord you know thinks a whole lot of marriage does he not was the first institution he created and here it's uh, at a marriage that he performs his first public miracle his first miracle and it was a a doozy (laughs) because it was a creative miracle so he thinks a lot of marriage he even um gives an analogy of his relationship with his church using marriage. You know, he being the bridegroom and his church being the bride. So he thinks a lot of marriage. But he also, we see, um, because of his attendance at this wedding ceremony, puts his sanction or his stamp of approval on the ceremony itself. And that's important because a lot of people today don't think they need a marriage ceremony, do they? They think, well, if we just love one another, quote unquote, we can move in together. But you know, if you go into a relationship cheap, you can get out of the relationship cheap. And that's exactly what they're really trying to do, isn't it? Anyway, um, his presence sanctified the marriage relationship. Marriage is a sacred union. It was the first institution that God created and ordained back in the Garden of Eden when he gave Eve to Adam, and they became one. You know, when Adam and Eve were brought together, did you ever notice the fact that in Genesis 5 to Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words? He said, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Their name, Adam. That's, yeah. Well, it wasn't even, it wasn't really even Mr. and Mrs. Adam because that would imply that maybe they had first names. It would be more like um, you looking at me and saying, hi, Frank. (laughs) That's my husband's name. (laughs) But their name was Adam. It wasn't Mr. Adam and Mrs. Eve. Right. It wasn't even Mr. Adam and Mr. Steve. (laughs) It wasn't even the Adamses. <laughs> it was Adam. Their name was Adam. Uh, and he called them Adam because they were one. They were one. That's, I mean, that's, that's important. Uh, because, it, you know, in this day and age with so many divorces, if you look at things from God's perspective and that he sees that married couple as one, you're going to ho- try a whole lot harder 
to keep that union together. Now, I know there are situations where it's impossible because one party wants to leave, especially if that one person is not a Christian or she is not a Christian. But um, it does, does definitely give a more binding relationship, a more, more binding element to a relationship for us to realize that God sees us as one. All right, let's move on. There are more things I write about marriage in your notes, but you'll have to read those in your own time. Did I already have that up? No, okay. Let's look secondly now at a woman is corrected, and for this we'll look at verses 3 to 5. It says, and when they wanted wine, that means when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. All right, a serious problem had arisen at this wedding celebration in Cana. The guests were still in attendance but the hosts, who would be the parents of the bridegroom, had run out of what? Wine. And apparently they ran out before they, they should have based upon their wealth. So this involved, not, this involved really more than just a social embarrassment. Because in those days, in the Nor- in Near East, there was also a strong sense of repreci- reciprocity. Which we probably wouldn't understand. Well, maybe to a degree we would understand this, but there would be serious repercussions for this family and the newlyweds, which they would carry for years because of this miscalculation. I was reading Dr. Henry Morris's book on this, and he said that back in those days it was so important that uh, you could even be sued or taken to court. They even had this reciprocity thing with regard to wedding gifts. So if I had been invited to, um, let's say, to Mary's, the, uh, the marriage of Mary's son or something like that, and I took this big, wonderful set of uh, dishes, then I would expect that when my son got married, Mary would reciprocate with an equal gift. You see what I'm talking about? This reciprocity, a balance. So um, the people knew how wealthy this bridegroom's father was, and so they expected to be able to stay a certain length of time based upon his wealth. And so it would not only be embarrassing for them to run out of wine before they were supposed to, but it, he went, Dr. Morris went on to say that the man could even be liable, <laughs> which is just blows my mind. But anyhow, it was serious. And, you know, even if none of that was true, it still would cause tension between the, the newlyweds and between her parents and his parents. <laughs> That's bad enough as it is to throw this in there. So to Mary's credit, to Mary's credit, she was concerned. She was greatly concerned for the family that was facing this difficult situation. And perhaps she was related to them in some capacity. Also, to her credit, she took the problem to the right source. She took her concern to Jesus. Is he the right source to take your problems to? Absolutely. So many people take their problems to the wrong sources. They go to the telephone with their problems, or they go to the psychiatrist, or to the psychologist, or they go to the pharmacist, or they go to the ABC store, the drug, I mean, the uh, alcohol dispensers, but they don't go to the great problem solver himself, Jesus Christ. But to her credit, Mary did. So why, then, we ask, did Jesus rebuke her when all she seemingly did was tell him the situation? All she said was, they have no wine. And you have to admit that at first reading, John 2, 4 
sounds pretty harsh on the part of the Lord Jesus, does it not? That sounds pretty harsh toward his mother. He called her woman and not mother. And so because of this, some people have accused the Lord here of being very disrespectful to his mother. But the word that he used for woman, you don't see this in the English, but the word he used was a very courteous, respectful term. He wasn't saying, woman, like my husband says to me sometimes, woman, what have you done now? (laughs) The word he used was uh, an elevating word. It was essentially the word uh, lady. It was a very respectful term. It It was an elevated term for a woman. Yet... You have to admit, on the other hand, that it wasn't the word mitera, which in Greek is the word for mother, you know, a more intimate word, mother. Why was he respectful to Mary, but not infinite, uh, infinite, intimate? I can never talk early in the morning, excuse me. I get better at night. Well, sometimes I do, unless I'm really tired. (laughs) But uh, why was he respectful, but not intimate with his mother? When Mary informed Jesus about the wine problem, She was actually asking him for a miracle. That's what she was doing. That's why she went to him. She was saying, okay, here's your big opportunity. That She was asking him for a messianic miracle. You see, Mary knew who her son was. And she also knew that he had officially begun his ministry. I mean, look, he's got six disciples. Yes, you know, finally, after 30 years of waiting, Mary is seeing things begin to happen. So what better way... For him to show the people who he was than by performing a great miracle in front of them all. You see, Mary had come to Jesus from a maternal standpoint. She was asking him to do something about the situation on the basis of her authority as his mother. And so by referring to her as woman instead of mother, the Lord was rebuking her really, for her wrong attitude. But he was doing it in a very gentle way, in a very respectful way. Don't read it wrong. The Lord would never talk to his earthly mother in a disrespectful way. But he was rebuking her. He was telling her that it was not her place to give him orders or for him to be subject to her authority. From this point on, their relationship would not be a son-mother relationship. From this point on, their relationship would be a savior-woman relationship. He would always care about her. We see that he even cared about her when he was suffering on the cross, the cruel cross. And he commended her care into the hands of the apostle John. And yet there, do you notice what he called her? He didn't call her mother on the cross. You can look it up in John 19, 26. He even there referred to her as woman or lady, we would say, but not as mother. So the point the Lord was making to Mary was that he would not perform the miracle in subjection to her request. When he said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His implication is what is there common to me and you? Really, when you think about it, What was there common to him and her? He was the creator God who created her. She was just a a created being. They didn't really have a whole lot in common when you think of it that way, who he is, God Almighty. So what he was, if, if you want me to spell it out in modern day, essentially this is what he was saying to her, modern day terms. Your thoughts and my thoughts are going to begin to 
to diverge from this point. I'm heading down a different path from what you think and what you expect. There will be a cross for me to bear that you don't even know about yet, and that cross is going to have to come before the crown which you so long for me to wear. You think Mary wanted to see her son wearing a crown? Absolutely. So he was saying to her, your concerns are no longer the same as mine. Your, my concern is to be about my father's business and to proceed to that cross. My time with you is behind. This matter of running out of wine is not really your concern. It's my concern. And if I choose to perform a miracle here, I will. But I want you to understand that it won't be in obedient subjection to your wish or for the reason that you want me to do it. It will be my reason. So that essentially was what he was saying there when he says, what is there common to me and you? Mary had an idea of her own agenda, but the Lord was not subject to Mary as to when to do things or when not to do things or what to do. His agenda was set in eternity past by his heavenly father, not by his earthly mother. So he told Mary, mine hour is not yet come. And uh, all the vital hours, we'll see that John mentions the word, or has the Lord mentioned the word, his hour hasn't come seven times. Remember we talked about sevens? There are seven times in John's gospel when it says his hour had not yet come in so many words, you know. All the vital hours of the Lord's earthly ministry were to be in perfect accord with the will of God and not the will of man. And after that seventh hour is stated, the Lord goes to the cross and the will of God is perfected, it is completed. That's why, again, why there's seven. This early ministry rebuke of Mary's attempt to intercede on the behalf of others, you know, the, the wedding party, would run out of wine. She was attempting to intercede on their behalf with her son. And yet she's rebuked by her son. So this stands as a very strong refute of Catholicism's teaching regarding the intercessory work of, of Mary. When Roman Catholics are encouraged to pray to Mary and ask her to command her son to do things on their behalf, they are doing so in stark contrast to what the scripture states. And we always, you know, we believe in this ministry that the Bible is the final authority for our doctrine and our practice and our faith. Not what, what a particular dogma of a church might say, but what the Bible says. Now, before continuing, two more things need to be mentioned. First, the Lord's rebuke of Mary did not mean that he had no intention of taking care of the problem. We know that, right? Because we know what he went ahead and did. Uh, he did perform a miracle, but he didn't do it because Mary had asked him to do it. Secondly, his rebuke of Mary was not because she came to him with the problem. It's always wise and it's always correct to take, as we talked about, to take our problems to Jesus. So he didn't rebuke her because she brought the problem to him. As, we, as I said, or intended in, to say the reasons for his rebuke to Mary were because she really came with a mixed motive. Yes, she wanted the wedding party to have wine and to save the newlyweds from this embarrassing situation, but didn't she also have a mixed motive? She wanted her son to be elevated also. Um, and she came with maternal authority 
and she came really with her own agenda. So mixed motive, maternal authority, and her own agenda. But it's beautiful, and I just love this. I love seeing Mary's beautiful response to Jesus' rebuke because it really shows us how godly a woman and how noble a woman and how humble a woman she was. Her faith survived this testing and correcting. Does your faith survive testing and correcting? You know, correcting is is hard to take sometimes, isn't it? When people come to us and, and correct us. But she, her faith survived both. She understood Jesus well enough to know that he would never say something to her that was not righteous. You know, she didn't just, Humph, well, I can't imagine being treated like that by my own son. I have all, all those years that I washed your clothes, you know, 30 years I've taken. She didn't react like that at all. And therefore, we know, too, that his, his rebuke was very kind and very, very gentle. And that's the way we should go to people when we feel absolutely burdened to rebuke them, which I find, oh, that's the hardest thing I ever, ever have to do. That's why I have Terry. <laughs> you do it, Terry. I can't. But uh, we should always, of course, bathe ourselves in, in love and prayer before we do that. <laughs> you wondered why I had you around. <laughs> that's what she just said. She didn't take his words in a disrespectful way. She knew, you know, she knew him well enough that she knew he would never maliciously hurt anyone. So rather than being offended, she quietly subjected herself to his gentle correction. Furthermore, and I love this about Mary, she wasn't at all dissuaded in, um, in what, what she thought he was going to do. I mean, it just she, just she just turns around. Okay, he rebuked me. So she says to the servants, whatsoever he saith to do, do it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. She knew that he was able to restore the wine. Um, so she really did have a pretty good understanding of who he was. And she knew that he would take care of She knew he wouldn't leave these people in this embarrassing situation. So the Lord's answer to her uh, to me, I would have probably interpreted his answer as a no. But Mary interpreted it as a yes. And we know this because she did promptly tell the servants, whatsoever he saith to do, do it. Is not that the best advice any mother can give a son, any mother can give a daughter, any person can give anybody? That's the best advice there is. Circle that in your Bible. <laughs> whatsoever Jesus says to do, What? Do it whatsoever. Don't put it off. Whatever it is, do it. By the fact that the servants obeyed Mary's command, we know, as I mentioned, that she was more than just another invited guest. So she had some kind of authority here at this wedding in the fact that they obeyed him. And it's important that she did tell the servants to do what Jesus told them to do because probably they would not have done so. Otherwise, they'd say, who's this fellow telling us what to do? So she, being in a position of authority, had to say, do whatever he says to do. And it's also important that she said, whatsoever he saith to do, do it. Because... uh, his, his ways are, of wisdom are so much higher than our ways and, and thoughts. And these servants, just like you and I, are also servants, aren't we? We need to understand that we need to do whatsoever he saith to do, even if it seems weird, <laughs> even if it seems 
uh, strange and, and contrary to our own thinking. If Jesus says to do it, and where does he talk to us? In the word. If he says to do it, we just need to do it. It would have seemed very strange for these servants to go and fill these large uh, six water pots with water when it was wine that they had run out of. So it's a good thing Mary said, whatsoever he saith to do, even if it's weird, do it. You know, it probably seemed really weird for the blind man to have um, mud made with spit put on his eyes and then for him to be told to go and wash his eyes, wash that mess off his eyes in the pool of Siloam. I know it seems strange and weird for Naaman. Remember Naaman back in uh, Second Kings? He had leprosy. He was a Syrian general, a man of great authority and power. Um, and, but when he went to Elijah, he was told to go and dunk himself seven times in the dirty Jordan River. Uh, that's pretty strange. And yet, you know, everyone who does whatsoever Je- Jesus says to do finds out that they're blessed, aren't they? We need to just humble ourselves. Even if we don't understand it, we just need to obey because of who he is. He deserves to be obeyed. His ways are always best. All right, some wine is created. Let's look at verses 6 to 11. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Now that is talking about that hand-washing purification ceremony. That's why they had those water pots there, okay? They weren't for drinking. And these uh, water pots contain two or three firkins apiece. Have you ever measured in firkins? <laughs> we'll talk about what a firkin is. All right, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. The first thing that we want to notice about this third section of our lesson is the six water pots of stone. Now the stone water pots were actually clay um, and they held uh, two to three firkins apiece, which is the equivalent of 20 to 30 gallons of water each. So that is a total of between 100 and 150 gallons of water. Now, the water in those jars was, as I said, used for ceremonial purification and hand washing. And it wasn't for the purpose of drinking. And Jesus told the servants to fill those pots with water. Because Jesus Christ is the king, he's the king of kings, he gave as a king. He gave as a king. I don't know if he brought a wedding gift, but here it was. case he didn't here was his wedding gift he supplied not only the bridal party well he saved them from this awful embarrassing situation which would have been even more complicated than we can imagine but he also provided all the wedding guests with an abundance of wine some 150 gallons of wine and we will find out that it was the best wine 
He gives as a king because he is a king. The Lord Jesus always gives exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Remember when he fed the 5,000? 5,000 men, which didn't even include the, the wives and the children. Could have been as many as fifteen to 20,000 people. It says, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it says that they ate until they were filled He didn't just give them a little bit to make their tummy stop growling. They ate until they were filled. And then there were even how many baskets left over of food? Twelve baskets left over from just those five little barley loaves and two fish. When the Lord supplies, he does it with lavish abundance. And it's significant to notice that the servants filled the water pots where? To the brim. This not only tells us that these servants were good servants because they could, you know, this was a big job. This was obviously somewhere toward maybe the end of the feast because of the fact that they had run out of wine. Um, And so those water pots were probably at a pretty low level. They had used a lot of water for the washing of hands and all those people eating and the washing of feet, feet, etc. So they they didn't just turn on a hose and fill them with water. They had to take them to a well somewhere or to a spring somewhere. And then they had to hand fill them. I don't know what they used. I always use a milk jug, but I don't think they used a milk jug. But they had to hand fill those water jugs, which held a capacity of between 100 and 150 gallons of water. And they, but they weren't lazy. You know, they could have stopped maybe three-fourths of the way, but they filled them to the brim. So they, they, these servants had all-out brimful obedience. That's what you and I need to have, is all-out, brimful obedience. You know, go that second mile. Also, it's important that we're told this because this tells us that nothing further could have been added to those uh, water po- the water in those water pots. The water went to the very top of the jars. You know, skeptics of the miraculous would like to tell us that Jesus just poured some wine on top of the water that was in those water pots. That's what they would attempt to tell us. But by seeing in writing that the water was to the very top, they don't have a leg to stand on with trying to convince us of that. Furthermore, that kind of watered-down wine would not have won the strong approval of the governor of the feast who said that it was the best wine. So when the servants had filled the water pots to the brim, then Jesus told them to uh, draw some out and take it to the ruler of the feast, who's also called the, the governor of the feast. What was he? Well, how do we term somebody like that? The wedding director. He was the wedding director. He was in charge, really, of both the wedding and the reception. And when the servants obeyed Jesus... And brought the governor some of the water that was made wine so that he might taste it. It says the governor did not know where it had come from. But what are we told? The servants which drew the water knew. That's what it says in verse 9. The servants, you see, had rightly submitted to the Lord Jesus. And they had obeyed him just as they had been told to do. And their obedience brought them blessing. They knew a fantastic miracle had been performed. And I don't know about you, but my speculation would be that those servants believed on Jesus Christ and were saved. 
Amos 3, 7 says that the Lord God revealeth his secrets unto his servants. And I love this. I don't think I have this in your notes. Uh, Donald Barnhouse, do I have a quote from him? I, might, I think I added it later. He said this. Listen to this. I love this. He said, I'd rather be a servant and know where the wine came from than be a governor and not know where it came from. He says, a Christian has a better idea of what could, what could happen in the next hundred years than anyone in Congress or the United Nations. I'd rather be a servant and know the plan of God than be a governor and not know the plan of God. End of quote. And I thought, yes, that's so true. Well, when the governor of the feast tasted the new wine, which he had assumed had been brought forth by the bridegroom's family, he was so impressed with its flavor that he called over the bridegroom and he commended him by saying, you know, every man at the beginning, in other words, at the beginning of the wedding feast, does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. He had obviously directed many weddings. And he had seen a typical pattern at the the wedding receptions or the feasts. At most wedding festivals, the best flavored wine was brought out early. I mean, you know, when you have a wedding reception, I now know because I had one last July. And you have your punch, you know. um, You like to make the big, when, when do you have the most guests at your reception? At the very beginning. You have the most guests and then they start to fizzle out, you know. Pretty soon they want to get out of there. (laughs) But so what he had seen was a pattern that the people would bring out the best punch, the best wine, and the best food at the beginning so as to impress the guests, the vast majority of the guests that were there. And then when people um, were properly impressed and some began to leave to travel back home and fewer guests remained, then the poorer quality wine was brought out. The governor of the feast was commending the bridegroom here, of course his family, for bringing out the best wine last. And notice, too, that this, this is incredible, th- little things that we can miss. The, the, this miracle of turning water into wine is mentioned in such an incidental way. It, it just says, this is the way we know that it, a miracle was performed. It says when he, speaking of the governor, had tasted the water that was made wine. That's how we're told a miracle had happened. That's in verse 9. There's, there's no description at all of how the Lord performed the miracle. You know, it doesn't say that he, like in this picture, I don't think this picture is accurate for what I'm talking about anyway. It doesn't say that he went over and touched the pots and they spoke some some magic formula. It doesn't even say that he prayed to his father in heaven to perform the miracle. It doesn't say that he commanded the water to change its, its uh, chemical qualities and turn itself into, into wine. It doesn't say anything like that. It just merely tells us that it had happened, that the, the, wine, the water became wine. And so apparently Jesus merely willed it to happen. And he did so in a most quiet and untheatrical way, did he not? He just willed it. I mean, after all, this is a piece of cake for, for who he is. What did John already tell us? Look at John 1.3. John 1.3, all things were made by him. Speaking of the word, the word we know is Jesus Christ from verse 14. 
It says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He made everything in existence, the entire universe. So to make some wine from water was, was no big deal for the creator God. When you think of everything else he created. Now I'm going to quote from another man that you've all heard of, Charles Spurgeon. Jesus did this miracle. You know, he didn't, he didn't try to cause sensationalism or anything. He just willed it to happen, and it occurred. So Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He says, quote, Whenever you try to serve Jesus Christ, do not make a fuss about it, because he never made any fuss in what he did, even when he was working amazing miracles. If you want to do a good thing, go out and do it as naturally as ever you can. End of quote. That's good advice, isn't it? We shouldn't do things for the Lord so that we can get the praise and the acclaim of man, right, or woman. We, we just do it because we love him, and we should do it in just a background kind of a way, you know, so that he would be lifted up. Again, I go back to let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify you. No, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And mighty things for God can happen in just the doing of ordinary things, like filling water pots. It's the obedience to the Lord which is important, not the doing of something sensational or spectacular. All right, now you've all been waiting for this part, right? (laughs) We need to discuss the wine that was drunk in New Testament times in Israel because so many people do look to this miracle as their biblical excuse for for drinking alcoholic beverages. Now, they can look to extra-biblical sources all day long, but let's talk about what the Bible actually teaches. Some people insist that wine back in those days was not fermented. But no one back then had refrigerators, and they did not have the preservatives necessary to keep juices, such as grape juice, from fermenting. Therefore, grape juice, we'll just use grape juice. I'm sure they made wine from other fruits. But, for example, grape juice not only fermented, but it fermented very quickly in the hot climate, especially of the Middle East. Now, wine was the staple drink for people, the Jewish people. We'll talk just about Jewish people, okay? Wine was their staple drink. Water, without going through the tedious process of boiling or filtering, Water was not very safe to drink. So the simplest way for them to make their water safe to drink was to add some, um, some fruit juice to it. Now, milk, of course, was available, but milk was primarily used to give to children. Now, because the fruit juices of the Lord's Day did ferment, and they did ferment quickly, and because it was the staple drink of the nation of Israel, the religious rulers, the rabbis, put very high restrictions on its use. Drunkenness, based upon the Old Testament scriptures, was considered a great, great disgrace among the Jewish people. Their rabbis taught them that wine, unless it was mixed with water, could not be blessed. It, could, it would not be called what we call kosher, or what they call kosher. You know, if you get kosher pickles, that means they've been blessed. <laughs> Kosher means blessed by the rabbi. So if, if wine was not mixed with water, the rabbis wouldn't bless it. it was, they considered it unclean because it would defile the body. 
A rabbi, now listen to this, a rabbi would not bless any wine unless it had been mixed with at least three parts water to one part wine. And some wine mixtures contained as much as ten parts water to one part wine. In Jewish eyes, the Jewish people believed that only barbarians, only the heathen Gentiles, would drink an unmixed wine. And um, that is what the Bible calls strong drink throughout not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Strong drink was undiluted wine. And throughout the Bible, you know, throughout the entire Bible, that God explicitly teaches against drunkenness. Does anyone disagree with that? I mean, all you have to do is look at the word. He, he teaches against drunkenness is absolutely sinful. So by the time the Jews mixed their wine with the minimum rabbinical requirement of water, it was relatively harmless. I mean, even three parts water to one part wine would be pretty harmless, but they went as high as ten parts water to one part wine. So if someone was really determined to get drunk, they'd have to drink a lot. And I don't think they could even really get drunk drunk because to drink that much, they'd be making a lot of trips to the outhouse and it would be going through them so much that it would be very hard for them to get drunk. Also, consider the fact that this is Jesus Christ who created this wine. Would Jesus make a, um, an alcoholic product that would defile or intoxicate those who drank it? I don't I can't even begin to imagine that he would contradict his own word because he wrote the Bible and he is the one who so strongly speaks out against drunkenness. So just, there's more I have written for you in the notes, but we're going to be short on time here very quickly. How can I possibly end at 1130 when, oh, when I got so much to share? All right. Um, have you ever thought about the vastness of this miracle? The wine that Jesus created had no seeds from which to uh, grow vines. I mean, he started with no seeds, okay? Of course, we hope the, the wine didn't have seeds in it. But there were no seeds to, uh, to begin the developmental process. There wasn't even a single ripe grape which uh, grew in soil or sunlight. I mean, there, was no vine. there wasn't even a vine. There were no harvesters which harvested the, the grapes and then carried them to the wine press, and then people with big feet like me would squish it, you know? There were, none of that. His wine was simply created, and it was created from nothing. He did not just change the chemicals of the water. He just changed, we'll talk about this, it was a transformation. It wasn't a reformation, it was a transformation. And it was one with no seeds, no vines, no sunlight, no grapes, no water, no soil, no harvesters, and no wine press. It just came into being, and that is what we call a creative miracle. There's different kinds of miracles. This, his very first, was a creative miracle. Only the master creator, God of the universe, can make something from nothing. And that's exactly really what he did here. Now, the Apostle John tells his readers very clearly in verse 11 that the Lord manifested forth his glory by the miracle of changing water into wine, and that his disciples believed on him. How many disciples did he have? Six. The six men, already they'd already been called to follow him. We know they, they had already believed on him, right? 
We've heard testimony from them that they did believe he was the Messiah. So what does this mean here that they believed on him? Well, we talked about this last week. Faith begets faith. And unbelief begets more unbelief. This means that it increased their faith. They believed on him even more. The person who in faith comes to the Lord Jesus Christ will find that his faith will grow. It will be validated and it will be strengthened as, of course, that one grows in spiritual uh, maturity. And, of course, to do that, you need to be in his word. And this was certainly true of the Lord's disciples, as we'll see. Uh, They grow and they grow and they grow. And sometimes they're pretty slow at it, just as you and I are. But after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit came up in them, then they really, really grew. Now, think of this one. I don't think I have this in your notes. But as with the six clay vessels, the six disciples would be filled to the brim with joy. You know, wine in the Bible symbolically speaks of, of what? Joy. So as the six clay vessels, the six disciples, would be filled to the brim with joy by the transforming work of Jesus by the time he was finished working with them. Same thing with you and I. We are also just earthen clay vessels, are we not? And who's the one who fills us with his joy? To the brim? Jesus Christ. It's important to notice that John referred to the wedding miracle as the beginning of Christ's miracles. And we see this in verse 11. That's important because it refutes all those records, extra-biblical records, even including the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are the books that are not found in in our Bibles, but the Roman Catholic Bible has books between Malachi and Matthew called the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha, miracles of Christ are are recorded um, that he performed during his childhood years and his young adult years. However, we do not believe the Apocrypha is God's inspired word, and that's why it it was not canonized into um, the Protestant Bible. And here is a proof when John says that this was the beginning of miracles. This means that Jesus didn't perform miracles during his childhood or his pre-ministerial years. Now we get to the good part, all right? I hope you've been in this Bible study long enough to know, or those of you who are new, make sure you understand this, that whenever we have an account such as this miracle, this water-to-wine miracle, um, we, we go through the story, And there's a lot of applications that we can apply to ourselves, but in so many cases there is another level, there is another depth to accounts like this, that we can just look superficially at the surface and get a lot, but if we go deeper, we get even more. And that's what I want to to do right now. One such underlying truth which comes forth from this first miracle of Jesus Christ becomes evident for us when we compare it with the first miracle of Moses in what is called the Ten Plagues of Egypt. In considering what Moses and Jesus each did with water, no, you won't find this in your notes, so stop looking. (laughs) When we consider what Moses and Jesus each did with water, we find the contrast demonstrated between law, which is represented by Moses, and grace, which, of course, is represented by Jesus Christ. Moses turned water into what? That was his first miracle, 
Of course, God really did it, but turned water into blood. Turning water into blood speaks of judgment. While turning water into wine, which is the Lord's first miracle, speaks of joy. And it speaks, really, you know, of grace. It is God's grace that brings us joy. It says in John 1.17, we've already read this, John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law, because no one can perfectly obey it, brings judgment. On the other hand, grace came by way of Christ, who did perfectly fulfill the law, obey the law, and, there, and he died in the place of all of us who fail to do that. We fail in our obedience to the law. And that's all mankind, because all of us fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we are condemned to die. But he took the penalty of our condemnation upon himself and made it possible for those who put their trust and their faith in him, in Christ, to have joy. Because we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. And, of course, it's his grace which does that. All right, so that's one deeper application. When we compare the law and what Moses did to water with grace and what Christ did with water. <clears throat> but there's another one. There seems to be here a perfect illustration of Israel's spiritual condition in these six water pots which needed filling. Six is the biblical number for what? Man. Six is the number for man. Man always falls short of perfection, which is seven. Six is the biblical number for man. Man was created on the sixth day. All that was left of Judaism in Israel was of the flesh, of man. The wine or the joy had given out in Israel's marriage relationship with God. By the time of Christ's first coming, Israel was practically empty spiritually, just like those water pots were practically empty. What she needed was the same thing that those people at the wedding festival needed. She needed the joy which only Christ himself can supply. And when he supplies the joy, it's what? The best joy, the best joy of all. While the world and Satan give the best first. You know, remember what the governor of the feast said? Most people bring out the best first and they save the worst for last. Just think of what the world does. The world and Satan, they give the best first. Pleasures of sin seem very sweet for a while, but they only last for a season, don't they? <clears throat> they give out too soon. And then, he, you know, he keeps the worst for last because the wages of sin is is death. The Lord, however, works in the reverse way. First, the Lord leads people into the wilderness. <laughs> First, he, he has them deny themselves and, and take up a cross and follow him. And then, he saves the best for last. Then, joy of joys, he brings them into the promised land and gives them crowns. For the believer, you see, for you and I, and I hope everybody in here is a believer in Jesus Christ, for us, the best wine is yet to come, is it not? He saves the best for last. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> saw fit to inspire John. Remember how we started out this uh, chapter here? He inspired John 
to include a reference to the fact that the Lord's miracle of producing joy occurred on what day? Remember, we said it seems kind of strange that he said, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana. And that was the third day from when he talked to Nathaniel. And we say, you know, who cares? But remember, no word in scripture is without meaning, without purpose. Every, every little A and the is in there for a reason. So the Holy Spirit wanted John to tell us that this occurred on the third day. You know, the greatest joy that this world has ever known occurred when? On the third day, when the Lord Jesus arose from the dead and burst forth in resurrected glory from his womb. Did you know that the earth itself, the earth, emerged from its watery grave on the third day? The third day, the third day. We see it over and over again. You can look up Genesis 1, 9 and 10. Now, sadly, however, because Israel did not accept Jesus Christ as her Messiah King, she has yet to receive the joy that he provided, that he alone can provide, right? She doesn't have joy. Does Israel have joy today? No, she has no joy. However, one day she will look upon Christ in recognition, and like the Canaan uh, wedding party, she will invite him to, to come to her. And you know when that will be? Hosea 6.2 tells us that Israel will be revived and raised up and live in the very sight of God himself in the third day. Hosea 6.2. Hosea 6.2. Look it up for yourself. Since 2 Peter 3.8 tells us that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, I will let you try to calculate and see when, when Israel will be raised from the dead and have the joy that Christ provides. Um, we know she'll be saved at when? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it could be right around the corner. Now, I'll close with this. I want to give you seven ways in which the miracle of turning water into wine also portrays for us the gospel message. I don't think this is in your notes either. I don't think you, I think you can look and look, but I'm not sure. I can't remember. But anyway, first of all, now we're talking about the gospel message. The six, the six clay pots, remember six is the number of man, which were practically empty, and Mary's statement, they have no wine. Those two things speak of the deficiency of man. Are we deficient? Yes. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us have joy. We've all run out of joy. We've all run out of wine. Six clay pots. That represents the unsaved man. Secondly, Jesus was the one who ended the deficiency, right? He's the only one who can solve the problem of man's shortcoming. Third, the transforming work of Christ is not visibly seen. It's not visibly seen because it takes place where? In the heart of the clay pot, the sinner. And it happens in just an instant of time. Remember we talked about the fact that uh, the Lord didn't make a big spectacle? There was no lightning bowl of bolts that came down from heaven and, you know, when, those, when the water turned to wine or was transformed to wine. 
He just did it. He just willed it to happen. Same thing when we're born again. Lightning doesn't come down from heaven. There aren't sparks and fireworks and all that sort of thing. It happens within the clay pot. Uh, it's, a, it's not a reformation. In other words, the Lord did not add some color to the water to make it appear different. He didn't change the chemicals or something like that. It wasn't a reformation. It was a total transformation. He actually transformed water into wine. The saved person isn't reformed. We're transformed. We are a new creature, a new person in Christ. Fourth, a person's salvation, like the Lord's miracle of water to wine, is just the beginning of miracles, is it not? When we're saved, it's just the beginning of miracles. Throughout our lives and beyond, there will be many more to come. Fifth, the gift of approximately 150 gallons of good wine which Jesus created was a free gift to the bridegroom's family and their guests. And that's an illustration of his grace. Salvation is totally of grace, and it is a free gift of God, of the King of Kings. Six, the governor of the feast judged that the new wine was superior to the previous wine, which had been the best that the wedding host had to offer. This tells us that the best that this world can give us is still inferior to that which Christ gives us in salvation. And by the way, how is it that the Lord Jesus, by his grace, made it possible for us to have joy? He shed his precious blood. And in the Bible, his blood is symbolized by what? Wine. Seventh, the miracle of Christ brought joy back to those at the wedding feast. It brought obedient servants, probably, to faith in Christ. I think those servants were probably brought to Christ in faith and saved. It also, you know, brought joy to the wedding, all the guests, and it strengthened the faith of those who were already believers, the disciples. And we're told it brought glory to God. And that's the th those are the same things which occur likewise in our salvation. It brings glory to God. It, it strength, strengthens the faith of others. It brings joy to our lives. Um, obedient servants get saved, etc. Now, to produce this joy, Jesus used what? He used water to produce the joy, and water is a scriptural symbol for the written word of God, Ephesians 5.26. We are washed by the water of the word. Christ provides joy through not only his shed blood, which is represented by wine, but through the water of his word. Who was it that he chose to fill those six empty water pots of stone or clay with water? Servants. He used servants. Christ was, of course, the one who performed the miracle to bring the joy, and yet he elected to use servants as his human instruments in performing this work of grace, in bringing joy to the people. So we have some beautiful pictures here. Then, real quickly, I'm going to close with this, a walk to Capernaum. After the wedding is over, the Lord leaves Cana, 
with his disciples and his family. Let's look at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren. That's how we know his family was at the wedding and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. Now, next, not next week, but two weeks from um, today, we will look at what some people say is the Lord's, besides his resurrection from the dead, a lot of people say this was his greatest miracle of all, was the cleansing of the temple. And we'll talk about why that was such a fantastic miracle when we understand how big the courtyard of the temple was and that he single-handedly cleansed it. Thank you again for your patience. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as your servants, we need to ask ourselves, are we... Are we brimful, (laughs) obedient, and faithful, dedicated servants? Are we going about trying to fill those who are empty of joy in their spiritual lives um, and doing so by way of the water of God's word? I pray, Lord, that we are. Christ is the one we know who performs the miracle of making, making us new creatures in Christ, creatures filled with joy. But we have the added joy of being his being used as his servants to bring his supernatural joy into some empty clay vessel. I pray, Father, that we would each have divine appointments this week, that we might always be looking for empty water pots to fill, and that you might bring those people our way, and we might share the gospel with them. Lord, be with each woman and bring her back two weeks safely to us, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.